book of Jonah. Well, I'm going to redo this. I am sorry. <clears throat> so, I'm going to need somebody's help here. Mr. Gaiman. For some reason, this thing keeps going back to 2018. <laughs> <clears throat> This is my mailbox, and I need. All right, so uh, <clears throat> electronics are a beautiful thing when they work. <laughs> a couple things. Uh, Colton is home ill, and we are uh, we have an appointment with Mayo Clinic tomorrow and Tuesday. As far as we know, tomorrow is on over the phone or something, we believe. We don't know what's going to happen after that, but that's, that's where we're at. Um, thank you. <laughs> that was crazy. I will thank you. Um, so what we have going, what, what's going on next with Colton is that uh, he is going to be giving, given radiation in form of iodine, whether injection or in pill, we are not sure. The other thing we're not sure about is after he is given radiation, he can't be around people for, they say, four to seven days. And so we're just going to camp out at home and we're going to be not here. We will either be in the, he will either be in the hospital at Mayo or we will be home and can't have anybody around. Does that make sense? And the, radi and, and the issue is the radiation, which is so weird. Literally, if he blows his nose, he has to put it in a special garbage can in his room and then tie it all up really tight and then take it out to the garage for 80 days before we can throw it in the dump. That's weird. And who's going to do that? <laughs> so... It's uh, radiation flushes through the body in eight days max, um, but there are still lingering after effects of that, and so he is gonna has to be gone away from children um, for thirty days. So he won't be here for a month um, because we're we're cognizant of you. Does that make sense? And so that that is. What's going to happen? We don't know all when that's going to happen because we fired the guy in Duluth and hired Mayo Clinic. 
which took us from 22 to 24 weeks of beginning to maybe this week. Um, we don't know. We're hoping that. We're praying for that. So, All right. When we left Jonah, let's get into the text of the word, what's important, right? <clears throat> when we left Jonah two weeks ago, we discussed Peter's passage in 2 Peter 3.9, how that God is patient with us to give the gospel. It's not patient with the world as many of us think. How many have read that passage? He's patient with the world, long-suffering so that many of them can come to know the Lord. He's patient with us that we'll get our butts in gear and start telling people about the Lord. That's the issue. He's patient with us. Peter reminds us that we were once, and, and why? Why should we be giving the gospel? Because we have to? Man, someone gave you the gospel, and you know how that changed your life. We didn't deserve it. We didn't, it wasn't owed to us. God just mercifully gave it to us. Amen. And yet, on that basis, do we go out and tell others about Christ? And that's very fitting for Jonah, because here's Jonah, a child of God, as in one of the Israelites, true, and yet he was unwilling to give the gospel, quote-unquote, to Nineveh. He didn't want to do that, did he? And we lose sight. We're the same way. We lose sight of what God did for us and are unwilling to give it to somebody else. We, we believe that, and, and to be honest with you, there are truly believers that believe that Biden doesn't, doesn't deserve to be saved. That is a lie. It's a lie. There are churches in America today that if you're not a Republican, you're not a Christian. That's a problem. What does, what does this being patient look like? Youngblood states it very well. He says, the memory of our own salvation enables us to embrace the scandal of God's patient mercy. Why aren't you dealing with this sinner, God? Because <laughs> God is merciful. And for us, it's scandalous. How come the rich guys get everything? How come the wicked get, get by with everything? memory of our own salvation enables us to embrace the scandal of God's patient mercy as we impatiently anticipate and pray for our Lord's return. We all want the Lord to come again. Amen? The moment He does, the moment He does, and We've never experienced this. All we know is a twinkling of an eye. But in that twinkling of an eye, here's the problem. I didn't tell Ethel. I blew it with my sibling. Why didn't I give the gospel? How many understand what I'm trying to say? You have no time but now to give the gospel. As soon as Christ comes again, it's done. There's no more opportunities. It's now or never, literally. It's now or never. The text also tells us that the judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is like a thief in the, in the night, bidding its time. Patiently waiting for the right moment, a moment that only God the Father knows. 
God will not bear with sin and injustice indefinitely. And he does not bear with the, inju- with the wickedness found in Nineveh, which we will find in the book of Nahum. And in that respect, the book of Nahum is an important complement to the book of Jonah. The city that God spared in the book of Jonah, he destroys in the book of Nahum. Although the book of Jonah is about mercy, God's mercy will not eradicate God's judgment. God is both merciful and he's a judge. Please remember, God is both judge and mercy giver. He alone knows and acts in perfect balance. Do we? I don't think we can in this depraved state. We try our best, but we consistently fail in a balance that God perfectly has. We must remember we are not God, and our balance is never as perfect as it should be. But we must endeavor to place our steps and actions in perfect calculation within the context of the Holy Word. We have something to go by. Amen? And it doesn't have to be rewritten. Amen? One author states it this way, believers should serve as agents of mercy, encouraging and rejoicing in repentance however feeble it may be. This means that we must adopt Christ's ethic of loving our enemies and interceding on behalf of our oppressors. Jesus Christ himself at the Mount of Beatitudes says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown what? Mercy. The parable in Matthew chapter 18 expresses this mercy as a vital relationship between the reception and the demonstration of mercy. The Bible says a slave who owned his, who was owned, (coughs) (coughs) who owed his, the slave owed his master an enormous sum of money. The master came to him and what did he do with with that debt? Does anybody remember? He forgave him that debt. We Christians are indebted to our master who has forgiven our enormous debt. Amen. The slave then turned around and required immediate payment of a measly sum from a fellow slave. Do you get the correspondence here? I'm forgiven, but no, I'm not going to talk about it with you. Because I think you don't deserve, or I think you need to be judged, or I think, I don't care what I think. What does it say? And there's a big difference there. And unless, and here's the word we're going to talk about today, unless we understand context, we aren't helping anybody. But appeasing our own thoughts. We Christians are indebted to our master who has forgiven our enormous debt. After the slave then turned and went to this fellow slave that owed him a little bit, said, I want the money. Give it to me now. Didn't act like the master. He acted in his own, what he thinks is best, right? Upon hearing this, the master subjected the wicked slave to torture until his entire debt was paid. Believers are motivated to show mercy. 
by both the memory of the mercy we were given and by the anticipation of the fullness of mercy coming. How many understand that? We owe people mercy because we have been given mercy by God. Amen? People deserve... Okay, no one deserves mercy. But Christians are the ones that need to be merciful to the world. To show mercy to them. Do we do that though? I can guarantee many of us would be honest say, in, with both the presidents that are on the ticket, I'd like to give them peace of my mind. True? Here's the reality. The only thing you need to be giving them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that will change their heart. We, here's the deal, and it's going to be throughout the whole sermon here. People don't fix people. God does. People don't fix people. God does. That's so important. We are motivated as believers because we have we, the memory of us being saved, us being forgiven, should just, just explode us onto the gospel scene with all of our friends and neighbors and enemies and all the like. Not only that, but the anticipation that Jesus is coming again is a short time we have to give the gospel. It's now or never. Both of those are true. Jonah seemed to have lost sight of God's mercifulness to him. And he does not necessarily like God giving mercy to his enemies. True? Just like all of us. We have forgotten what God has done for us. And in turn, we view others as wicked sinners that don't deserve what we were given. Is that a problem? I think it's a big problem. There are two contexts involved when we're studying the book of Jonah. First of all, it's Jonah's context. The second one is Nineveh's context. What do I mean by context? <clears throat> what I mean by context is you are unique in how God brought you through your entire life up till now. True? You had different parents. You had different ways of discipline. You had different this, that, and the, the only thing that all of us have in common is the Scripture. And Scripture doesn't tell you every exact detail about every issue that might happen in your family. So you have to make judgment decisions. True or untrue? Yes. And how you deal with them is different than anybody else deals with them. We're all individuals. We're all different. We all have our context that we were raised in. True or untrue? Absolutely true. Jonah had a context. He was an Israelite. Is that different than us? Absolutely. He was a prophet. Is that different than us? Yeah, there ain't no prophet here. If there is, you're in the wrong church. Just saying. He was, and you can go on and on. These are his context. God talked to him. God gave him scripture. That's his context. Nineveh has a context. And God knows all about, by the way, God not only knows about the context, he created the context. 
In fact, Jonah's behavior at the close of the book is reminiscent of the older brother. How many saw the similarities as we were reading that? Yeah. God, I did all this and I deserve this. These guys don't. What are you doing? It's the same principle. Jonah isolated himself in his bitterness and exchanged joy for despair over a perceived imbalance in the scale of God's justice. That's not fair. We've all heard it, and frankly, we've all said it. And we've all been wrong. As James warns, judgment without mercy will be... will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James chapter 2, verse 15. That's a pretty powerful statement. There's certainly a lot there. How many would say there's a lot there you could think about? And this is, it, it actually kind of hurts to think through this. But today I'd like to finish up Jonah by preaching just one word. Before I reveal that word, the issue at hand is, as I stated two weeks ago, how did Jonah deal, or how did God deal with Jonah? How did he deal with him? Was Jonah a sinner? Did God deal with him like we deal with sinners? That's the question. And should we deal with sinners like God dealt with Jonah? Absolutely. The answer is obvious. How did God deal with Jonah? He dealt with him mercifully. I will argue that, and I have absolutely no reservation whatsoever saying this. God treated Jonah as his story was happening a whole lot better than Christians treat Jonah treat Jonah today 2,700 years later. And you have the example. Jonah's not known in... How many of you parents are going to call your son Jonah? And why? How many get this? You're not going to because, well, he's this and he's that. And, he's, and, we, and we throw all these things at him. God didn't do that. I'm going to state that again because I think it, it, it goes to the whole heart of the message here. God treated Jonah as his story was happening a whole lot better than many Christians treat Jonah today 2,700 years later. God did not call Jonah by every sin he may or may not have committed. It's not found in the text at all. God did not use dispersing names calling name calling to put Jonah down. God did not go to family and friends tearing down Jonah's character by gossip and slander. He did none of that. God did nothing like Christians do to each other. Why? Why was that? Now, I will tell you, I have learned so much from Jonah. So much. And part of it is, 
how to deal with sinners. We've gotten this attitude that we get in people's faces. Did God do that with Jonah? When we act differently than God, we are exemplifying that we were and still act like the spawn of Satan, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If God did not call Jonah by sins he committed, then why are we? If God did not use disparaging names, putting, down, putting others down, why do we? If God did not gossip and slander against a sinner, then why do we? Do we somehow not continually commit sins against God like Jonah did? Isn't it true that there is not a one of us in here, not one of us, that doesn't commit sin? Continually. We all do. Do we actually somehow believe, or, 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 <coughs> I got to read because I, I was very poignant on this stuff. Do we somehow not continually commit sins against God like Jonah did? Or were Jonah's sins more egregious than ours? Do we actually somehow believe that we do not deserve the disparaging words we use to act and put down others? Are we so small and incompetent that we need a gossip and slander against others to make ourselves feel better? I personally have learned a ton about God and how to better relate to one another. I truly have. How to be merciful. God was merciful to my wicked being. How to be gracious and gentle serving others. I believe it is fair to say that if you have not learned anything new from Jonah, well, then there's probably a bigger problem. What is it that this book of Jonah brought to the forefront? What one word will you remember? <coughs> How many would say, well, God, right? Was God expressed and explained in Jonah? Yeah. I mean, we saw God and who he was, and wow, that was fantastic. All Scripture is here to explain who God is, right? Jonah does not disappoint in that aspect. How about mercy? How many say mercy? Yeah. It's all over there. Mercy saturates the text. How about repentance? Yeah, repentance is there. How about... How about judgment? Absolutely. Judgment is expressed and lived. Matter of fact, just to be honest and it may help us think a little bit about this, judgment is what makes mercy real. Take away judgment, what does mercy mean? There are probably many words that depict the content of Jonah, but one word that most of us, if not all of us, would never think of is the word context. You say, well, where's that? It's not in there. But the principle saturates the text. What are you talking about? Well, bear with me. I know I'm a little sick. I'm a little emotionally strained and 
you can fire me if you want, that's fine. Every single seminary worth its salt would scream, context, context, context. How many would agree with that? Absolutely. When teaching how you interpret the text. In other words, you can't just go to a, pull out a verse from somewhere and make it say what you want it to say. You can't impregnate the context of a passage with our modern day context. The context is everything in understanding what the text is truly saying. That means the grammatical, the historical, they matter when interpreting the text. Amen? <coughs> Jonah was not written in 2023. Amen? <coughs> it has a context. In essence, our goal must to be to preach the author's intent when it is written, i.e., context, 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 you will never get the authorial intent of Jonah unless you understand its context. And I know every one of us had heard that a million times and would say amen. But it's true. It needs to be reiterated over and over again. The same principle of context applies to how God dealt with Jonah. How did he do it? And how God's example should be our goal in our endeavor to serve each other. How many think that would be a great goal? Let's do the one another's like God wants us to do the one another's. Amen. Would Jonah and God's relationship be a good start? Or a start? Sure. We can certainly learn. Just like context is the key to true biblical interpretation, context is also key in how we serve one another. God served Jonah with grace and mercy. Why? God not only knew Jonah's context, he created Jonah's context. So God's got a one-up than us do, right? He knows everybody's context because he's created that context. The reality is, none of us know each other's context like we should. We don't. To be honest with you, let's just, let's just can we be honest? Is that okay? <laughs> Husbands and wives, do you know the context of your wife or your husband perfectly? Or are we still arguing? How many get this? We don't know each other as God knows us. Is that true or false? It's true. But context is the key in how we serve one another. God served Jonah with grace and mercy because he knew the context. If we are ever going to effectively serve others, we need to understand and imply this term, context. I truly believe that Jonah can be practically viewed as a litmus test. I really believe it. If we go through Jonah and you saw a wicked, nasty sinner who deserves God's wrath, and what is his problem? God told him to do all that he did not. You might be a legalist. Because in essence, what you're saying is, Jonah bad or worse of a sinner than I, really? Or Jonah horrible, he can't even obey what God tells him to do. 
Do we always obey God's word? There are multiple contexts we are missing. First of all, our own context. We might say, you, are, you also are a nasty sinner that deserves God's wrath. Well, here's your context and my context. We are all sinners who deserve God's wrath. We're in the same boat. That does not mean that once saved, you can throw everybody else under the bus. The slave and the owner, remember that. It's the same thing. Matthew chapter 18. Other contexts. Others' context. We'll put it that way. Others' context. Jonah was told by God that Israel extended its borders and powers to the greatest level. Now God is going to preach to Israel's enemy so they repent? What? I don't get this. Jonah has a context, or Nineveh has a context. Others' context. Jonah had a context that we have no, we don't get. How many of you have ever had a dad that told you one thing, and then 10 minutes later he told you the exact opposite and said, you need to do this? And you're like, confused. Has that ever happened to anybody? Am I the only dull one here? It happened. Listen, he couldn't understand. God, you gave us all this, and now you're doing this with our enemies. It's our enemies. We have to understand that. Here's the question. Do we, rejo do we rejoice if our enemies get sick or something bad happens to them? Do we say things like this? They deserve that. I guarantee you, most of us, including myself, listen, I am not, I wrote this to me. How many understand that? They deserve that. They are getting their just reward. God is judging them for their sins. Or maybe, hopefully, God will use this to fix their unspirituality that they possess. What gives us the right to judge that? Is it not true that God alone holds these truths? In other words, do we have the right to judge why God chooses to do what He does? Absolutely not. By this, this is not new to modern day legalism. The disciples did the same thing in John chapter 9. You say, that's in the Bible that they did this? Absolutely. Listen to what John chapter 9 verses 1 through 3 says. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. How many remember the story? There was a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who's the one that sinned? Hold it. How did you get blind from birth to sin unless you are thinking, oh, he must have did something wrong? What did he do, Jesus? How many can see that? Oh, it just kind of is gross. Who did the sin? This man or his parents? 
that he was born blind, Jesus answered. And what did Jesus do? He, he didn't come out and say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> did Jesus do that to the disciples? He didn't do that. He didn't say, what's wrong? What's your problem? He said this. He said, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Do you know bad things happen to good people because God chooses it to happen? Because he has a plan and he has a, uh, uh, his character to be expressed through that plan. The disciples did not understand the blind man's context. Did the disciples get it wrong? Absolutely. Did the disciples, and they're godly people. How many would say, yeah, they're, they're, you put it on a scale, they're somewhat godly people. Did they misjudge that man? Was it, do you think that man was impressed? Here, the disciples think I'm a sinner, my parents are sinners, that's why I'm like this. The disciples did not understand the blind man's context, nor did they remember their own context. Remember, Peter, you're out there cussing and swearing and catching no fish as the world's greatest fisherman in Capernaum. What's your problem? (laughs) He didn't do that. He didn't remember how he... (coughs) This is earlier. But later on, he's going to deny Christ. Later on, he's going to do exactly what God tells him not to do at the transfiguration, and God has to get after him. The disciples did not understand the context, nor did they remember their own context. Instead, they acted just like the legalistic Pharisees of their day and jumped to conclusions that were absolutely wrong. The Pharisees all focused on such practices of judging others to make themselves look and feel more godlike than others. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Luke chapter 18, what did they say? God, I am so thankful that I am not like other people. Let me ask you, do Christians sometimes act that way? I am so thankful that I'm not like everybody else. And then he goes into it. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulteress. Or even like those that the tax collectors. (gasps) That's so beneath me. What a smug, arrogant, legalistic attitude. How many would agree with that? Pharisees flaunt the sins of others to hide their own sins and make them feel superior. There is a God-given principle to encourage one another. Amen? There's a God-given principle to help one another with their sins or keep them accountable. How many have heard those things? By the way, I encourage you to read some of that because it's not what you think it might mean. We'll do that a little bit today. Some would say, amen, preach it, brother. Yeah, we need to encourage one another. We need to keep each other accountable. Get this thing going. When a fellow believer sins and we need to get in their face, we need to tell them their faults, then we go and tell others their sins and their faults. This is exactly what the disciples just did. It's exactly what the Pharisees just did. And unfortunately, 
we even see that practice today. And we see that practice in every one of our lives. How do we encourage and how do we help people get out of their sin? Well, the text talks about that in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And this is so important because I, I really believe this. <clears throat> How many of you, of you are to have a, a sports fan or uh, NBA, NFL, uh, high school, whatever? These guys are keep, keeping each other accountable. How many have ever seen that? They're in their face. You need to do this better. Come on, what's your problem? And they're in their face, right? We've taken that and implemented it into the church. That is not what the text says at all. Let's look at the text because I think, and this is where I need to work on this so bad. Here's what the text says. Brothers and sisters, who is he talking to? Believers, the church, no question. If someone is caught in a sin, what do you do? Well, the sports thing, we get in their face. That's not what it says. Here's what it says. You who live by the Spirit, instantly it puts the onus on your, you. Okay. Whew. That's tough. Because all of us have sins to deal with. Every one of us have sins to deal with. Three of you agree we have a problem. All of us have sins to deal with. There's not one of us who's outside that. You who live by the Spirit should do what? Look at the text. What does it say? Say it out loud, please. Restore? How? Gently. What is that to get in their face? What is it? It's the total opposite. It's anti-scripture in this text. And this is so cool. It's so good. I've got to memorize this. I've got to put it on my head, my forehead, my, my arms. How many understand what I'm talking about? Flactories are coming back in because that verse has to be there. We've got to restore that person gently. And then what is the verbs? What is it? Help me out. It's right there in the text. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Watch yourself. Okay, not only by the Spirit, you who live by the Spirit, that's putting the onus, okay, I got to do this right. And it's so hard. It's so hard. But I need to be gentle and I need to be careful. Watch myself so that I'm not being tempted. And then he gives, I think this is the greatest way to help Christians out of their sin. Number one, gently. Number two, carry each other's burdens. In other words, let me come alongside of you and let's work through this together. Amen? 
Let me ask you, did, did a man named Jesus do exactly that? Absolutely. Carry each other's burdens. And in that way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is exactly what God is going to do with Jonah. He is not going to play the gotcha game. He simply is going to show Jonah what he should be doing concerning these issues. God is coming alongside of Jonah and graciously helping Jonah. God understands Jonah's context and is mercifully and lovingly showing vulnerability in his own life. But God isn't vulnerable, but he's doing that. God did not get in his face, did not call him a moron or a doofus or any other derogatory term. He did not start listing all the sins that Jonah was guilty of. God simply understood Jonah's context perfectly because he made Jonah's context. He dealt with Jonah mercifully because he is merciful. It starts with knowing the context of the person. God loved Jonah through his sin. Amen? God loved Jonah through his sin. There is not a one person in here that understands their context completely. And there's not a one person in here who knows everybody else's context perfectly. So when we get in somebody's face, we could be totally wrong because we're making that judgment, not understanding the context, just like we have with Jonah. We are not God, but it does not mean that we should not know others well enough to understand their context. About two months ago, I gave you the context of four ladies in our church that need encouragement and help. For the first time, you understood a little bit about their specific context. I will tell you this, there's not a one person in here that doesn't need each other's help. But you're not going to know unless you know their context. And you're not going to know their context unless you get with them and love them and care for them and talk with them and be with them. Amen? That'll never happen. So, if you judge a fellow believer wrongly, are you not creating a wedge and disglorifying God? Just like in studying the text, unless you start with context, 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 you're going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. That's not, that's not, only, is not, not, that's not only in Scripture, but it's also with Christian relationships. To be honest, I believe there is an argument to be made that true believers, true believers want help out of their sin. There's no need to get in their face. They want help. Matter of fact, we're going to get to a text here real soon that expresses that very thing. True believers want help in what they struggle with. But the problem is this. They have been beaten, maligned, and being played the gotcha game so much by fellow believers. They say nothing 
for fear of the gotcha and legalistic abuse that they may encounter. Did you hear that? It's so important. I remember very clearly sitting in a very important meeting. And this was said, and I, I can, every one of us can say this. It was said, I'm scared that people are going to find out who I really am. What were they saying? I can't know the motive of what they're, why they're saying what they're saying, but I will tell you this. Each and every one of us have sin in our lives. And we're trying to deal with that with Christ, I pray. But Christ also gave us a church to deal with that and to help with mercy and gentleness. Amen? And what he was saying was, I'll be bludgeoned, I'll be beaten, I'll be torn down, and I don't want that. How many understand? Most Christians do not tell one another their faults and are not honest with each other because they fear the gotcha and the legalistic abuse that, will encounter, that they will encounter. Say, well, what in the world? Well, hang on. There's another scripture that tells that. Here's the scripture I would go to in a mature church. That goal is to be transparent and honest with one another about our struggles. Would it be cool if we had a church that you can literally go to anyone in that church and say, I struggle with this, will you help me? Knowing it wouldn't end up on the prayer chain and in the gossip ears of the telephone. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because here's what a mature church does with the one another's. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another. Yeah, that ain't happening because I know the results. But James says it should happen. And that despite what people are going to do with it, it still should happen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. See, there's nothing new. This is nothing new. This is why Romans 12 says that believers should not think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. Humility is a mark of a mature Christian. Humility is the result of complete awe of God and repulsion of self. People don't fix people. God does. Furthermore, all people need fixing. <laughs> True? All people need fixing. Every one of us need fixing. And true Christians desire to please God in everything they do. Sometimes they just don't know what to do. But you wouldn't understand the context unless you really knew them. I remember a, 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 
uh, a play that we had at Pillsbury. We went to all these churches and put on this play. And one of the stories was about the man with the big red nose. When you see a man with a big swollen red nose, what do you think? He's a drunk. No, he just had surgery on his nose. You jerk. Right? You don't know his context, then shut up! Literally. It goes with families, too. I can't wait to get a hold of Pastor Graf's kid. I can, I can help them do it right. You have no idea the context. Zero. But you're taking your context of your family and impregnating it into Pastor Graf's family, and you're going to fix it. You're going to make a mess. People don't fix people. God does. We think we know a whole lot more than we really know. Because we simply do not understand the where's, the why's, the how's other people's lives contain. We do not truly know others' context. Yet we think we know and we're going to go after them because we think what we know is the reality and we'll give them a piece of our mind and help them out of their struggles in their context that I really don't know. I will tell you this. If your correction is filled with mercy and grace, how many would say, and, and I am confident, there's every single person in here, I want my confrontation and my help, my one another's to be filled with grace and mercy. Every one of us want that, Right? Man, am I wrong? We all want to do it mercifully. We all want to do it with grace. Then here's what it's going to take. you got to know the context. you got to know the context. If context is one of the biggest obstacles in helping others in their sin, then instead of confront, confrontation on what you think, maybe ask if you can help. I will tell you, I do not know you like I should. I need to know you better. But I will, do, I will tell you this. When I need a road assessment because I'm traveling somewhere and I trust one person to do that, and there's one person I call. If I need to know, should I fire my doctor, there are two or three people I call in this church, and that's who I call. Because I know that's their expertise. I know that contest at least. But I don't know. That your dad pummeled you to a, to a broken vessel when you were a child. I don't know that. I don't know all the stuff, the baggage that each person carries. I don't know that. Therefore, I have got to be graceful and ask questions instead of getting in your face. How many understand that? This is exactly what God did with Jonah. The only way Christians will confess their faults to each other demands trust, mercy, grace. 
Until that happens, legalistic abuse will ensue under the disguise of accountability. Now, to be fair, there is such a thing as accountability, but you earn the ministry of accountability. It's not granted to you. Did you hear that? You earn it. We say, what do you mean you earn it? You find out. You ask questions. You lovingly try to help them. Don't just be the big kid on the block because that does not work. That is not what God designed. I'm going to read that again because I think that's a really important truth. There is such a thing as accountability, but you earn that ministry. And you earn it by trust, mercy, grace, and loving service in context. In context. I'll be honest. I'm going to use Mr. Zarin for an example, and I hope he doesn't mind. I would never be able to help Mr. Zarin before he was saved. I would not be able to help him because I looked at him as a drunk and I don't want anything to do with you. A lost soul and get out of here. That would be wicked of me. That would be legalistic of me and be dead wrong. Instead, just need to get with him. Put her on her own and say, I love you, man. Let me show you. I, I... I've got problems here, and I've got problems here, and I've got problems here. Does that all of a sudden break down all problems? You know what? I'm just like you. I just got a different sin than you. And one's not more important than the other. One's not worse than the other. We're in this together. We need God's help. God actually wants us to come to him without a mask without playing or hiding something open and vulnerable. Because only when we tell him everything, honestly and sincerely, all our emotions and deep hidden thinking, (coughs) only then can he do something in us. Only when we give him our negative thinking and feelings can he change them and heal us. By the way, When you were saved, what does that mean? You were saved from what? Or maybe, let me ask you this. Can we say that salvation means healing? Absolutely. If we hide our anger, our insults, our frustrations and disappointments, eventually our joy will flee and our spirituality will die. When Jonah prays to God, there is hope for Jonah. When we pray, there's hope for us. And instead of getting in their face, why don't we sit down and pray together? Jonah had good information about God, but his head religion didn't make him a kind, warm, loving, and sensitive person. True? Not at all. He had it all here. 
He knows that his God is gracious and compassionate. He knows that he's slow to anger. He actually wrote it down if he's the writer of Jonah. He knows that he's abounding in love. He's a God who relents from sending calamity. He knows all that. But it's not enough to have intellectual or mind religion. If a life shows a cold heart and damaging attitudes, it means that no transforming grace of God has been accepted. Because God's amazing grace is always God's transforming grace. God intervenes in favor of Jonah. He wants him to grow. He wants him to save him from his anger, his hatred, his enmity, and put whatever words you want to put in there. He wants to save him from all that, and he wants to save us from all that. The Lord grows a vine for Jonah. For the first time in its shade, he is happy. However, God intervenes one more, once more. And the next time, the vine is dead. Jonah laments its loss. Then God comes to him with the question, and this question permeates, it should permeate every one of us. It's the last question of the book. What does God say? You pitied the plant, Jonah, but I pitied the people. Should we not do the same? Instead, Jonah, you cried over the plant that appeared without any of your effort, your work, or your achievement. There is no record answer from Jonah, recorded answer from Jonah. Why does the book end with a question mark? By the way, did Luke 15... Verses 11 through 32 end with a question mark, in essence. Same thing. The story is open-ended. And it's open-ended for a reason. Because God's compassion is incomprehensible. It's incomparable. It's astonishing. It's challenging. And it's absolutely transforming. He dares to confront us with the real issues of life. He wants us to, to have courage to face the challenges of life with a proper attitude. His love towards us is fantastic and perfect. The warm compassion of God for people contrasts the cold, in-your-face attitude of the prophet and us. It's interesting, and I, I love the way this author said it. Jonah was commissioned, but he wasn't committed. That's really good. Listen, folks, we can all do better. Every one of us. I would dare say
there's probably a lot of we need to get together and pray together. That needs to happen. There may be even some apologies that need to happen. But those apologies are only going to happen and those prayers are only going to take place when we are, like Jonah became, broken. Realizing, I don't know their context, but I want to help. And so I'm going to come alongside and I'm going to love them. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to help them every way I can. And I'm going to be there for them. Because guess what? That's what each and every one of us wants to happen. Every one of us do. Jonah is a litmus test. I 100% agree with it. If we came out of Jonah thinking, what a jerk, we have a problem. If we came away as, oh wow, I see my own problems replicated by Jonah, I need to repent and turn back to God. And I need to start. And I'm telling you, I beg of you as your pastor, I beg you, start knowing each other's context. Understand how they grew up, what their home life was like. And do you know what's going to happen? By the way, you did that with your wife or husband, and you're growing a relationship. Relationships don't grow by going home and forgetting who these people are. They die. Relationships grow by having people over, praying with them, taking them out, praying with them, loving on them. And then, and then, you may gain the respect enough to say, hey, I need help in this area. I struggle here. Does this make sense? We are all guilty of being Jonah's in one aspect or another, or in all. I have no idea. We all have been brought together by God to this church to serve one another. But it is to serve one another. That means gracefully, mercifully love one another. Then and only then can we truly grow to what God wants us. We're not a sports team. Amen? We don't do things the the way the world does things. We do things the way the Bible says things. Nothing will be accomplished without the term context. I hope we understand that. I pray. Let's love each other like we never loved each other before. Mr. Gaiman, can you close in word for it, please? Please stand, I'll dismiss us in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that Jonah is not just an obscure Old Testament prophet, but that 
In your word, we learn what we can apply from his life, and I pray that we would do just that for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.